Today's sermon comes from Genesis 1, 3 through 25. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. 17-year-old pop star phenom Billie Eilish who is known as the queen of misery music, is the youngest female ever to go to number one in the charts in the UK album chart. And her music, her lyrics are dark. They're full of misery and darkness, loneliness. She's been criticized heavily for creating this kind of culture of uh, one-upsmanship in mental health with teenagers competing for who's the most depressed. Whatever you take of all that, this is true, that you learn a lot about Billie Eilish by the music she creates. Now, whether that is that she herself is depressed and lonely, or whether she is uh, committed to success at all costs and whatever it takes and how edgy she needs to be, you learn a lot about a person by what they create. Other end of the spectrum would be the artist Thomas Kincaid. He was known as the painter of light. So all of his paintings have a light in it, and, and his intent was to communicate inspirational and uh, life 
enhancing messages through his paintings. Uh, His paintings reflected his view of the world. Again, you learn a lot by someone, about someone, by what they create. So what do you learn about God by what and how he creates? What does the creation of the world communicate or reveal about God's character? First, first, the creation of the world reveals that God gets things done. There are two phrases in this creation account that appear over and over. God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. What we learn is that God's word not only commands, but it accomplishes what it commands. And that's very different from human beings. Uh, You can, for example, you can tell someone in your house, your apartment, your dorm room, whatever it may be, you can tell someone to go turn the light on. Now, for that command to be accomplished, that depends on a lot. It depends on the electrician that wired your house or your apartment, that he did it right. Uh, It depends on the light bulb in the socket that it's actually working. And it depends on the person you sent to do it. They've got to flip the switch. Not so with God. What God commands gets accomplished, and there's nothing that hinders what he commands, nor is his command dependent ultimately on anything in creation to get done. Now, he chooses to use creation in people, but he's not dependent on creation to get things done. Isaiah 55 says it this way, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word commands and accomplishes. And in God's economy, his command and his accomplishment of that command is all one. It will happen. God gets things done. You know, we talk about people. We characterize each other by, boy, that's, that's someone who gets something done right? That's just a person that has a knack to get things done. I'll tell you, there's one thing that you have not done that you can't get done, and that is your salvation. We think we're in great control, and control's an illusion. That's a whole nother rabbit trail. But there's one thing that you cannot get done. You can't save yourself. You can't get your salvation done. God got it done. And there's this amazing parallel between the language in Genesis 1, God said and it was so, and John 19, right before Jesus dies, he says, it is finished. The accomplishment of salvation was done. And here's what's powerful. We're gonna get to it probably in a couple weeks. In Genesis 3.15, God spoke a command. After sin had destroyed his perfect world, he said, 
I will put enmity between you, speaking of the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, speaking of the Christ to come, the Messiah, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What God commands gets accomplished. He commanded in Genesis 3, right after sin entered the world, I will send a Messiah to accomplish salvation. And sure enough, in John 19, 30, we see the, and it was so. Jesus' words, it is finished, could also be said, and it was so. Salvation was accomplished. And yet, when you look at her, if you had been there watching Jesus die, watching him tried and beaten and hung, you wouldn't have concluded that God was getting something done. In fact, Jesus' followers all fled. There was mass confusion. It seemed like evil was winning the day. It didn't seem like God was accomplishing something. It seemed like evil was accomplishing something. And yet the Roman and Jewish leaders had no idea that their evil plans to terminate Jesus were the very plans God was using to accomplish his salvation. That God gets things done and there is no evil, hell, creation, anything in creation that can hinder God's plan, that can hinder God's commands and the accomplishment of his commands. God gets things done, and that means that you can take him at his word. You can take him at his word and be fully assured that what he speaks in his word will get accomplished. Let me give you a couple examples. Philippians 1, the word says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That means that you can be assured that God will finish his work of salvation in you even when you feel like sin is winning the day in your life and in your heart. God will bring it to completion. Or in Hebrews 13, God says, I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. God will never leave you even when you feel most vulnerable, most exposed, and most rejected. Or 1 Corinthians 15, your labor in the Lord, your labor in Christ is not in vain. God will accomplish his purpose through you. Even when you feel like what you're doing is a waste of time or you're not seeing the results that you want to see, God has promised he will accomplish his purposes through you. God gets things done. His word not only commands, it accomplishes. God's commands are not hindered by anything, and nor are they dependent ultimately on anything in creation or his people to get, to get done. I remember years ago uh, when, when golf clubs were going through this um, just kind of massive overhaul, this new technology was coming out, and these you know, drivers and irons were being remade with new materials and so that guys could, you know, so that people could hit the ball farther and uh, I remember on the, on the tourney, on the PGA tournament, the, these young guys were coming up with this new equipment and they're bombing the balls and they're winning tournaments and Tiger Woods was still somewhat in his prime at the time. And I remember he was stubborn. He wouldn't upgrade to the new equipment. And the announcers, you know, would say, he, he, you know, he's being stubborn. If It's gonna cost him. You know, if he doesn't upgrade to this new equipment, these young guys are gonna out hit him. They're gonna win tournaments. It's gonna cost him. Right? I want you to imagine if Tiger Woods, out of his stubbornness, 
just to prove a point, would have showed up at a tournament with an old bag of wooden clubs from the 1960s that he purchased off of eBay. And imagine if he would have gone on to win the tournament with all these young guys with better equipment and he beat them all. Right? If that would have happened, you would have praised Tiger Woods that much more, right? For his skill, for his expertise, inferior equipment. Listen, God can show up to a golf tournament, so to speak, with a bag of sticks from under a tree and win the tournament. We're going to get to it next week, and I don't mean this to be disrespectful in any way, but you and I are a bag of sticks. And God accomplishes his purposes through you, through me. He chooses to use broken, sinful vessels so that at the end of the day, he's the one that gets praised. And all glory and praise goes to him for getting things done. So what do we learn? Or what does the creation of the world reveal about God's character? First, he gets things done. Second, he delights in what he makes. There's a phrase, again, that repeats throughout this entire Genesis 1 creation account. It's, it's the phrase, it was good. At the end of each day, God saw everything that was made and said it was good. That word means delight. It means beautiful, delightful. It means pleasant. God created. God created and said it's beautiful. It's delightful. Now you and I, created in his image, get that. You and I understand that. I'll give you an example from my life. When I cut my grass and I string trim and I edge and I, I cut the hedges and I mulch the beds and I you know, take several hours and I get to the end of that, you know what I do? I stand on my curb and I look and I go, wow, that's beautiful. That is delightful. Now, for some of you, maybe it's you, you make a flower bed and you get done and you stand back and you go, that's, that's beautiful. Or maybe it's you when you decorate your house or your apartment, you know, for the holidays and you get it all decorated. What do you do? You stand back and you pause and you look and you say, that's beautiful. Right? You delight in what you make. Why? Because you're created in the image of God. And God delights in what he makes. The phrase, it was good, changes to it was very good after he creates people. Man and woman was the pinnacle of his creation. He didn't just take delight in creating people. He took Great delight in creating people. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship. The word in Greek there is poema. We are his poema. 
It's where we get the word poem. It's the work of an artist. It's the child that has a little piece of paper and a crayon and, and draws this picture. And, and then what does the child do with that picture? Runs to mommy and daddy and says, mommy and daddy, look, look, look. What's that child doing? Delighting, right? Delighting in what he or she created. This picture of God delighting is captured beautifully in Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Do you believe that God delights in you? Or do you feel like you're a burden to him? This characteristic of God is so foundational to a life of abundance and joy. And yet this is a characteristic that we either miss or doubt because of our sin or just flat out ignore. God is not a stoic. You know what a, what a stoic is or somebody would describe as a stoic, right? Never smiles, never laughs, uh, never seems to enjoy anything, never expresses emotion. That's not who God is. God delights. And yet what happens when we miss that characteristic of God or that character, that attribute of God? What happens to your life when you miss that or what can happen? I'll tell you in my life that when I am stressed or completely consumed by work, that I can become a functional stoic to my wife and kids and probably everybody else. I don't laugh. I don't smile. I don't express emotion. There's very little communication. And the times that that has happened in our lives, do you know what my wife has said to me in those moments? In that season? Keith, I feel like a burden to you. I feel like a burden. If you don't get that God delights in you, then you will feel like a burden to him. You're not a burden to God because he created you. And I will say this, that there is, a, there is never a time that you enter his presence through faith and repentance by the finished work of Jesus Christ that he doesn't delight in you. Because of the work of Jesus Christ and faith and repentance and uniting yourself to Christ, God delights in you. He takes great joy in you. There, is, there are three fundamental desires of every human being. 
That is love, worth, and security. You want to be loved? You want to feel like your life is worth something? And you want to feel safe and secure? This attribute of God, this characteristic of God that he delights in you meets all of those desires. Meets all of those desires. So what does the creation of the world reveal about God's character? He gets things done. He delights in you. And finally, he engages in the details. There's another phrase that repeats over and over in this creation account. And it's the phrase, according to their kinds. If you look at verse 12, it's a great example of this. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind. Two truths emerge about God from this one little phrase. That is that he engages in the details and he engages to fill. If each is according to its kind, there's a diversity of kinds. So when you look through the creation account, right, God creates diversity. There are many different kinds of plants and fruit trees. There's many different kinds of sea creatures and fish. He creates many different kinds of birds and flying insects. He creates many different kinds of livestock and animals and things that creep on the ground. All right, creation was diverse. Creation is diverse. And it's extremely detailed. You, you characterize somebody by saying that person pays great attention to detail. Right? That's a person of detail. Well, God pays great attention to detail. And I could give about a million examples of that, but let me give you one. I want you to consider this example. Have you ever considered the work that goes into that 16-ounce jar of honey that sits in your pantry? Probably not. So let me tell you. It exists only because tens of thousands of bees flew some 112,000 miles in relentless, unquestioned pursuit of nectar gathered from 4.5 million flowers. Every one of those foraging bees was female. By the time the life of each ended, they live all of six weeks during honey-making season. Each bee flew about 500 miles in 20 days. The span each, lot, each lives outside the hive. As these bees were flying themselves to death, the production inside the hive continued with stupendous efficiency. In the following sequence, bees bring nectar to the hive, carried tidily in her honey stomach. Bee is greeted, cheerfully one suspects, by a younger homebody receiver bee who relieves her of her load. Receiver bee deposits nectar into a cell and proceeds to reduce its water content and raise its sugar level by fanning it with her wings and regurgitating it up to 200 times, killing microbes along the way. More bees surround this cell and others nearby and fan them with their wings 25,000 times or so, thus turning nectar into honey. When the honey is ripened, wax specialists arrive to cap off the cells. 
And that is how every single ounce of every single honeypot, bottle, or jar in the world, hundreds of thousands of them, is brought into being. Now, you'll never eat honey the same way. God engages in the details. I mean, that's a bee. That's one minor part of his creation. God engages in the details. But not only in the details, he engages to fill. Verse 2 of Genesis 1 says that the earth was without form and void. And what we see in this creation account is formlessness going to form and void or empty going to full. And so in the first half or the first several days of creation, we see God bringing form. So you see light and darkness. You see sky and water. You see dry land. And then God concludes his creative act or the last half of the creation days by filling that form. So you have plants and fruit trees, sun and moon, fish and birds, animals, so that by the time he's done, what was without form and void becomes full of form and full. Formlessness to form, empty to full. That's the paradigm of creation. Jesus makes a powerful connection between the detail with which, with which God engages in creation and the detail with which he engages in your life. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, do not be anxious or worried about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And you, are you not of more value than they? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. They are beautiful. If God feeds the birds and clothes the, the lilies, then what are you worried about? Jesus identifies two of the major sources of anxiety in a person's life in Matthew 6. Anxiety source number one, security in the form of provision. Will I be taken care of? Will I have enough? Will I be provided for? Anxiety source number two, unresolved shame and guilt that leaves you feeling functionally naked, functionally unclothed functionally vulnerable before others. Just as God created the world with great details we see in Genesis 1, Jesus is recreating you with that same intimate, intricate detail in both of those ways, security and covering your shame and guilt. And he does that in every moment of your life, in every situation, in every trial, in every relationship, in every conversation, every meeting, every season. 
Jesus is at work recreating you with the same detail that we see him creating the world in Genesis 1. Both to bring form to your life, which means basically order instead of chaos. And then filling that form, filling you from empty to full. That's the kind of detail that he engages in your life, personally, intimately, with great detail. How would things change for you if you became conscious and aware of God's personal and detailed care of your life in every moment, every season, every hardship, every trial? How would things change for you? I'll tell you one. For one thing, you would quit trying to control things so much. If you could be assured that Jesus is recreating you in great detail in every moment, you would would stop trying to be in so much control. One of the greatest fears for kings in the ancient world was death by poison. And so most often in the ancient world, you have kings to avoid death by poison that would have a slave that they would have drink the wine, taste the wine before the king would drink it so that if it was, had toxin in it, deadly toxin, the, the slave would die and the king would be protected. But there was one king in the, in the first century BC, his name was Mithridates, very powerful king that went a step further. He was, you could basically say paranoid about dying or or being poisoned to death. And he was very powerful, very powerful king, ruthless king. He was the main enemy of the Roman Empire at the time. And so he he started to work on developing an antidote, developing an anti-poison potion that he could take that would cover any type of poison, right? And so he worked at it and he, he would, he would come up with potions and he would put it, uh, use it on pre-poisoned prisoners and Finally got a potion. It was 41-some ingredients, this, this potion that he developed. And he would, drink a, he would drink it every day. And it actually worked. He avoided assassination attempts, he, you know, because he was basically immune to all poisons. Finally, his, his son overthrew him. And he ended up kind of holed up in a tower. Uh, and he was dead set on wanting to die so he wouldn't get paraded out in front of the Roman Empire and be humiliated and lose his dignity. He was going to kill himself, so he took some poison. And obviously, that poison didn't work because he had, in his, his control and his power, he had kind of made himself immune to that. And so he had to order one of his guards, one of the soldiers, to stab him to death. Here's a man who had lived his life with so much power and control that is going to make himself immune to being poisoned that in his last moments couldn't do what he wanted to do. He couldn't kill himself. Somebody else had to do it for him. The quest for control always ends badly. And if you don't functionally believe that God gets things done, if you don't functionally believe that God takes great delight in you, and if you don't functionally trust in his personal and detailed care of your life, then you will take charge of circumstances. 
And that quest for control will always end badly. So the question I leave you with is this. Will you trust the one who gets things done? Will you trust the one who delights in you? And will you trust in his personal care, his engagement in the details to recreate you into the image of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, your creation of the world is astounding. The detail with which you made this world, the intent and, and just the sheer power, the accomplishment of what you spoke, that those two things are together, the delight that you took as you created, and even the pinnacle of delight of saying it was very good when you created people. Father, for us to understand that that power, that delight, that attention to detail is what you give us in Christ to recreate us, to bring form to our lives from the chaos and to fill that form with beauty and goodness and life and abundance is just astonishing. And then... Because you know, Father, that we're sinful and we forget that, you give us something like the Lord's Supper, a sacrament that we can taste and touch and feel to be reminded and assured of those truths of who you are. Father, as we continue to worship now, would you prepare our hearts to eat this meal with you, to have fellowship with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.